Welcome to It's Your Money, a practical guide for managing the financial resources God has provided. Your host is Christian attorney and financial counselor, G. Edward Reed. Hello and welcome to number five in our series of It's Your Money audio t- uh, recordings. And I want you to understand that today is going to be a real interesting one. It's the tyranny of debt, how to get out of debt and how to stay out of debt. I want to begin by telling you this can be life-changing, so it can be really a happy experience for you to learn these principles. The first point is, what is debt, actually? And uh, we understand that debt is living today on money that we expect to earn in the future. Most people do not think of it that way. They think, well, I'm going to pay this off, but sometimes things happen to them and they're not able to do it. And the Bible says the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave or servant of the lender. So it's kind of a bondage. It's slavery to our creditors. Uh, It's interesting that there are many, many people who have problems with uh, debt. And uh, I'm going to share one with you because if you've just been involved with the fourth session about tithing, I had a call from, this will be important to you, I had a call from a uh, lady. Actually, I've traveled a lot in my work, and when I came back, my secretary said, you know, every day you've been gone, this person has called, and would you call them back first in this list of callbacks? So I called this lady, and uh, when she started talking with me, she said, we're so far in debt that, that we've just come from an attorney's office, and he says that uh, our only hope is to go bankrupt, but I just don't think it's the Christian thing to do, do you? And I said, well, not if you can help it, and what is the nature of your debt? And she said, well, we owe about $300,000. And I thought to myself, well, this is not going to be that difficult. They probably bought themselves a big fine house that they can't afford, and people typically do that. And uh, they could just uh, downsize their house maybe and get things a little more manageable. So I said to her, of course, I didn't tell her what I was thinking, but I said to her, well, how much of that is your home mortgage? And she said, well, we don't own our home. We're renting. And uh, I thought, well, you know, this is pretty serious. So what is the nature of the debt? And she said, well, uh, some of it is back taxes that we owe the government. We had this business, and we were taking money out for withholding for our employees, but we spent the money instead of sending it to the government. And so we owe this money. And she said, some of it is uh, student loans that we both my husband and I have, and uh uh, then she went on to talk about, you know, some other things that they had. And then the, the, there's a portion of it also that's credit card debt. They've been kind of living on their credit cards. And I said, well, did the attorney tell you that if you file for bankruptcy protection that you cannot uh, get out from under the uh, taxes that you owe the government or the kind of student loans that you have are also not dischargeable in bankruptcy? So it's kind of an interesting situation that people get themselves into. But I did, I wanted to tell you the connection with the last session as well. I said to this lady, you've called me from across country, and uh, you're asking me as a Christian attorney to give you counsel on this, and I'm going to give you some counsel, but I want to ask you a question first. I said, have you folks been tithing? What do you think she said? She said, well, we can't afford to tithe right now. The big bottom line is, how can we ask God to bless us if we're robbing him? So that's one of the things to keep in mind, and we'll talk about that connection a little bit later. Someone asked me about bankruptcy, 
And uh, I want to tell you, we have it listed here on page 13 where we're talking about it. Is it a Christian alternative? The Bible says the wicked borrow and do not repay. Uh, What we're saying is that essentially, uh, if we borrow, we're duty-bound before God to pay it back because we've put our word on the line. Someone has trusted us and put faith in us. And I do want to tell you that there are occasionally circumstances, and I've only seen these once or twice in my many years of counseling, but I would say that, for example, if there's a nasty divorce and a, a spouse leaves with a bunch of debts and just essentially goes off or they're gone to prison or whatever, uh, there may not ever be a way. I mean, you could try contact your creditors, but if they won't listen, that may be all you can do. But for most of us, that's not the alternative, really. So what I want to tell you is that some people say, well, I know there was bankruptcy in the Bible. And I said, oh, really? Where? And uh, the people typically talk about Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, where it says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. Now, you understand that if I'm head over heels in debt and I file for bankruptcy protection, that is at my initiative. On this particular case, and that is the one in debt, but in this case, God said the creditors, the people who have loaned the money, have to forgive it at the end of seven years. So it's not an option for the individual. It's a command to the people who loan the money. So you understand that if I were to come to... uh, a banker back in Bible times, and I wanted to borrow money, uh, if my credit all panned out and it looked okay, and I was a good credit risk, if the the, uh, banker loaned me money, if four years of the seven-year cycle had already passed by the time I'm coming there, how long do you think he would give me to pay it back? Well, the answer is pretty simple, only three years, because the bankers are not stupid. They don't have the tallest buildings in town because they don't know what's going on. The point is, God wanted to limit long-term indebtedness to seven years, and that's very, very important for us to understand. Now, I want you to know that there are different kinds of bankruptcy also. The U.S. Bankruptcy Code allows for a reorganization, and if we're forced into bankruptcy, that may be the kind to go into so that we can at least let our creditors know that we're wanting to make things right with them. I also want to tell you that uh, some people ask, well, if I file for bankruptcy protection, uh, how long will it affect my credit? Well, you can only file once every seven years, but the bankruptcy actually stays on your credit record for 10 years. Uh, Just recently, I was admitted to practice law in the state of Tennessee, and when I filled out the lengthy application, they stated in one of those questions, have you ever filed for bankruptcy protection? So in many circumstances in life, maybe a loan or a professional application or something, this is going to be important. I recently learned of a couple who filed bankruptcy for $2,500 of debt. This is incredible that somebody would actually ruin their credit for that kind of money. But the point is, this is not really a desirable alternative. I just want you to understand that. What do you think of when you hear the word surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y? Well, it's kind of interesting, but uh, the definition, even in the dictionary, in most cases, is co-signing. Now, co-signing is something that sometimes people get involved in, and I personally believe, according to the Bible, that you should not do that. Typically, somebody who has needs to be co-signed for is a poor credit risk to begin with. Let's just say that I go to the bank and I make an application and they look at my credit record and they see that, uh, you know, I've did, they've just repossessed my car, I've maxed out my credit cards, and I'm three months behind on my house payment. Are they going to loan me the money? 
Well, obviously they're not, but they would like to loan because that's how they make their money. So they say, well, if you get your pastor or one of your family members or a friend to co-sign for you, then we will give you the money. I want you to understand how this works. The person who is a poor credit risk actually gets the money. The guy with a good credit gets stuck with the responsibility. And the fact is, if you co-sign for someone, that debt is on your credit record until it's paid in full. And it's interesting also that you become responsible. And I think the, the rate is almost 80% of co-signed notes are not paid for by the person who gets the money. So according to the Bible, you should never do it. And you can read about that in Proverbs chapter 6, 1 to 5. In fact, the Bible outlines it in a real interesting way. It says... If you've become surety for your friend, you've shaken hands in a pledge, you've snared by the words of your own mouth, it says, do this, deliver yourself, or you've come into the hand of your friend, go and humble yourself and plead with your friend, give no sleep to your eyes or slumber to your eyelids, deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Now, here's something fascinating. It's easy to understand that we shouldn't become involved with co-signing. But on the bottom of page 13, I've put this idea of personal surety. What is personal surety? Well, you actually sign for your own debts in that way. But personal surety is the difference between what you owe on something and what it's actually worth. For example, most people that are making time payments on an automobile actually owe more on the car than it's worth. Because typically you can go in with either the rebate or a small down payment. In most dealerships in the United States, if you have a job, you can get a car with no down payment. And that means that you get charged a higher price to begin with. But as soon as you title it and put it in your name, you know, several thousand dollars go off its value. And uh, that's the first year's depreciation. And typically then you would always owe more on the car than it's worth. And that's what personal surety is. And we want to encourage people not to get involved that way. And if there is a uh, borrowing that goes on, that you should always have more equity into the item than what you uh, uh, owe on it. Now, there's a statement in the Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, that says there's only two places in the world where we can deposit our treasures, in God's storehouse or in Satan's, and all that is not devoted to Christ's service is counted on Satan's side and goes to strengthen his cause. Now, I want you to understand, this is talking about an ideal situation here, but if I buy a house, let's just say I get a $100,000 mortgage, when I pay it back, how much do I actually pay back to the bank? Well, the interest rates have been quite low recently, but in a typical situation in the years past, it would be like three times the value of the house. Well, who gets the $200,000? Does it advance the cause of God? Well, you understand no one would ever sit down and write a check to the devil for 200000 but essentially, when we're in debt, the devil really shackles us and keeps us away from advancing the cause of God. And I'm going to give you a little thinking about this. What time is it when uh, you get your car paid off, typically? For most people, it's time to go out and get another one. And that means the devil would like us always to be in debt. Now, you remember earlier there were two ways to store up treasures in heaven, and that is by helping others and helping advance the cause of God. So if we're always in debt... How are we going to store up treasures in heaven? Or how much can we help others or help advance the cause of God? Just something to think about in that regard. Now, uh, 
typically today people get several application uh, for credit cards in a week or month, and they just keep coming. And uh, you just have to wonder about these. I got a thing in the mail several years ago that I wanted to just share with you because a lot of times there's this idea of a, uh, well, I, I say it this way. Uh, my uh, Years ago, people would say if something wasn't quite right that you smelled a rat. And uh, I got this application from Barclay Financial that said, uh, quick money. All you have to do is tick a little box here whether you want 5000 4000 or 3100 Now, anybody that has a logical mind would say, why doesn't that say 5000 4000 and 3000 And the answer is real simple. In the United States, under the Uniform Commercial Code, it is illegal for lenders to charge high interest on loans of 3000 or below. This is supposedly to help poor people. So they want you to borrow 3100 so they're out from under that law and can charge you 19% interest for the loan. Now, this is an incredible thing. But in addition, there's another rat here. And it says... Why not purchase credit life insurance? For the 5000 it's only $295. And I'm going to give you right now four reasons why you should never buy credit life insurance. Now, this is really, really important stuff. The first one is that you have to die to win. Now, who wants to do that? If you just get sick or if you lose your job, will it pay it off? No, you have to die to win. Another one is it's debt-specific. That means that if you were to die that only it can go to pay on that loan. A third one is that it's a declining value. You have uh, 60 payments the way this is set up. If you actually made 59 of the payments and then dropped dead, how much money would your estate get? Well, they only get the last payment, of course, because it's debt-specific for that. Now, if you are in debt, let's say you're just starting out in life, you have a young family and you have a mortgage and so on, if you wanted... Uh, insurance on the person who's the primary breadwinner, what kind should you get? Just a simple term policy, because insurance should not be thought of as an investment, but rather uh, for the thing it is, a death benefit to the survivors. Now, in this particular case, the $295, you'd say, well, if I had that money, I wouldn't have been borrowing the money. And they said, well, we figured you didn't have it. So they actually add it to the loan and make you pay 17% on it for the whole 60 months as well. So it's really, really not a good idea to do that. So the Bible says the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's Proverbs 22, verse 7. And uh, in the section dealing with finances in the book Adventist homepage 393, we're told this has been the curse of your life, getting into debt, avoid it as you would the smallpox. Now, back when this was written, smallpox was the worst disease on the planet. And uh, most of the people who contracted it died from it, as you know. Uh, there's now uh, just a few places, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta and a place in London that have some of the vaccine. But as far as we know, there are no active cases. But if this was being written today, it probably would have said, avoid it as you would AIDS. We're talking about pretty something pretty serious here when you think about it. Romans 13 verse 8 says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. And I like that one. One final little statement here, again from Adventist Home 393. When one becomes involved in debt, he is in one of Satan's nets, which he sets for souls. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than to run into debt. So we all understand the problem. Now let's spend a few minutes and see how we can get out of debt. And uh, 
I have uh, worked on over the years a three-step plan to get out of debt. I want to share it with you and hopefully it will be beneficial. I've had many, many people call me or come by and say thank you because just in a short time, most people can get out from under their consumer debt. And if they have a plan, they can really accelerate their home mortgage and be debt free before long. By the way, I will tell you with regard to debt, if you accelerate your mortgage while you're young, instead of having a college saving fund for an infant, for example, why not pay your house off and be debt free and then use the money you were paying on your house to help your child through school? A lot of people find that to be helpful. Okay, there's a three-step plan, as I mentioned, for debt elimination, but it has a basic premise. And the first one is establish the tithe. That's the premise. You're faithful with God, then the plan works. We've got all these promises in Proverbs 3, Matthew 6, chapter, Deuteronomy 28, Malachi 3, Matthew 25, many of the promises to faithfulness. And if you establish the tithe and not robbing God, then I believe the step will work for you. Here they are. Number one is you declare a moratorium on additional debt. That means that you're not going to do any more credit spending, that you decide that you're going to pay cash for things. And uh, that's going to be quite a change for most people. It's not unlike, uh, you know, a, a modified lifestyle situation. So no more credit spending. That's number one. Number two is quite important, but it needs to be in this sequence, and that's you make a covenant with God. This is a promise between your family and God, and you say, God, as you bless our family, we're going to use any extra blessings we get to pay off debts. Now, this is kind of an interesting situation because the average family will spend whatever it makes, no matter what it is or how much it is. And the interesting thing is, if they have a windfall, money they're not expecting, they'll just spend it some way. I remember a man telling me many years ago when I was mentioning this, he said, I know this is right. We got $2,500 we weren't expecting. And I said to my wife, how did God know we needed a new riding lawnmower? And they just went out and bought something. But if you've made the covenant with God and he blesses you, you'll know what to do with it. Now, this is just an interesting experiment. But let me ask you this question. Do you think God wants your family in debt? Well, the obvious answer is no, but do you think that God will bless you to get out of debt if you'll continue to spend more money on other things? Or to say it another way, do you think once you've made the covenant that God is likely to bless your family? And I've seen that happen many, many times. So you declare a moratorium on debt, you make a covenant with God that any extra blessing will go on debt, and then number three is you list your debts from the largest to the smallest in descending order. Now in the book, I actually have a triangle there, an inverted triangle, standing on the point of itself. And don't be upset with a triangle. It has nothing to do with uh, uh, the Illuminati or A.L. Williams or anything like that. It's just a little gimmick that I've used to help people to actually visualize or picture their debts. And I have just some sample ones in there, but I want you to understand the way I understand this, and that is to put the largest debt at the top and the smallest one at the bottom. For most people, the largest debt is their home mortgage or a line of credit on their house or their student loans or car loans or furniture. And I always put family loans there, too, because if you borrow from someone who trusts you, their loan is just as significant as anyone else's and should be treated that way as well. And then you see I have the MasterCard and Sears and Visa. 
Now, here's something to understand in all of this, and that is anytime you have a debt that requires monthly payments, you have to make at least one payment or the minimum payment due on every month on every loan. Now, this is incredible. You actually disregard a debt to your peril. A lot of people don't realize this, but you can actually go to jail for debts. For example, if I owed someone some money and I didn't pay him, he could take me to court. And if he presented the proper evidence and so on, I could be convicted. And the judgment against me. Guess what? If I don't pay the loan then, I could be in contempt of court and could actually go to jail. Now, this is serious. People typically don't do that because they'll borrow from a loved one or they'll do something to avoid it. But the fact is, it's really, really that serious. Now, I mentioned earlier in one of the other tapes that it is possible to go all through life, elementary school, academy, college, and never be required to take a course that will teach you how to balance your checkbook or buy an insurance policy or anything like that, to buy a car, the right way to do that. So people just learn by trial and error, lots of both. So what I want to show you is an illustration of this. A lady came to me one time after, a, after one of my seminar presentations, and she said, I didn't want to say this in front of the others, so I want to talk to you about it privately, but she said, I did not know until today that you could make more on your credit card payment than the minimum payment due. She said, I, I just don't know why I missed that. I'm the one in our family. But she said, I now know I should pay the thing off every month. By the way, some companies are unscrupulous. For example, Sears in the past has sent statements out to people, and if you owe less than $600, they'll say none due. Now, that means you don't have to pay it off this month, but guess what? They'll charge you interest on the unpaid balance for the next year, or the next month. It's really, really amazing. Well, the point I'm wanting to make is you make the minimum payment on everything you owe every month. And then any extra money you get, you put on the one at the bottom. And I have the, the credit cards down there primarily because they're high interest and hopefully they are your lowest debts. But as soon as you get the one on the bottom paid off, you put your minimum payment that you were always paying on that one with the next one. And in my little example, you see a Sears there. And any extra money you get, and as soon as you pay Sears off, then you work on the next one and go right up the list until your home mortgage is the last one. Now, when we get to session eight, you'll be so excited about paying off your house that you'll want to do that right away. But remember, you wait on your house for the last one for two reasons. One it is typically the biggest one, and if you started working on it, all your others would not go away, and it would take you maybe years to do it. But if you work it on the other way from the smallest debts up to the largest, then you can sing the victory song much more often, and it makes you know that you're making progress and you're cutting down those high-interest things. But you understand what the second one is already, and that is any interest that you do pay on your home mortgage is tax deductible. Now, the tax deduction is not better than owning your home, but it is better than not getting the deduction, and it's likely better than renting for most people. So I want you to understand this in this sequence. Now, uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, I learned this when studying with other Christian counselors, this principle of the three things. But I found something interesting in the book, uh, Councils on Stewardship, page 257. And by the way, this was written many years ago in 1877. 
And so I'll just read it through and you think about it. Be determined never to incur another debt. That's, you know, the moratorium on debt, if you please. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run into debt. This has been the curse of your life. Getting into debt, avoid it as you would the smallpox. And then here comes number two. Make a solemn covenant with God that by his blessing you'll pay your debts and then owe no man anything if you live on porridge and bread. In the South, they'd probably say grits and gravy. You know, whatever it is, something uh, inexpensive. Do not falter, be discouraged, or turn back. Deny your taste, deny the indulgence of appetite. Save your pants, pay your debts, and then work them off as short as, as fast as possible. That's the third one. But when you can stand forth a free man again, owing no man anything, you will have achieved a great victory. That's uh, Council on Stewardship, page 257. Now there's some additional things that you can do, and in the time that we have left, I'm just going to share with you real quickly about six things that you can add to it. So if you don't have the book, you have the book, obviously. If you do, they're on uh, uh, page 16, but otherwise you can just jot these down. The first one is establish a budget. In other words, actually put down on paper what you're going to do with your money. Know how much is coming in, how much is going out. Now this seems like a no-brainer, but lots of people don't have a budget. They just live from week to week or paycheck to paycheck and pay whatever bill squeaks the loudest. The second one is you set goals for your family. That is, you could say by the end of the year, we're going to pay the car off or we're going to pay off MasterCard or whatever. You set goals for your family. The uh, third one is destroy credit cards. And I have a little word there saying if, destroy credit cards if. And the if is if you're not paying it off every month or if you're buying things just because you can get it with the credit card. And this is really important to know. So uh, use your card to your advantage. The fourth one is you purchase depreciating items with cash. Now, what are depreciating? Well, that's not a very good question. The best way to ask it is what isn't depreciating. And typically that's your home or property, that kind of thing. But purchase things with cash. Number five is begin economy measures. Now, this is really, really interesting. That means that little things add up. Buy things when they're on sale, buy things that you need when they're on sale, and so on. Uh, turn off lights in rooms you're not using. Turn your thermostat you know, down some uh, in the winter, up just a little bit in the summer to save a little bit there. Now, number six is actually my favorite one, and this is have a sale. Now, most people who are middle-aged, at least, if they were to inventory their possessions, they've got stuff in their possession they'll never use again as long as they live. Maybe even young people have things like that. The point is, I'm going to suggest that you have a yard sale, that you sell off stuff you don't need and use the money on their debt. Uh, we actually had a yard sale. And this was in 1987 when we were in debt. We never had a yard sale before. We lived in the country. We didn't think people would come out, but they came out. And we got $265 for our junk. Now, the interesting part about that is that uh, we took our family to Taco Bell and had a vegetarian burrito supper for all four of us with drinks. And then on Monday morning, the 245 that was left, we invested that and made 2,700% return on investment in one day. And I want to tell you about that in session number eight, and I hope that you'll be able to be with us for this time. Remember that you can get out of debt, and following these principles, you'll be able to be a free person again. Your family will enjoy the benefits of living debt-free.
You've been listening to It's Your Money with Christian attorney and financial counselor G. Edward Reed. If you'd like to learn more about developing financial strategies from a Christian perspective, call 1-800-328-0525 and ask for the companion It's Your Money book and workbook written by Mr. Reed. You can also order individual It's Your Money CDs by name or topic. Call 1-800-328-0525 or visit online at www.adventsource.org.